So putting it in context, there's all the large-scale miners put together. There's about 7 million people around the world employed in mining companies. But artisanal miners, there are 45 million miners. And to a large degree, these folks are pretty invisible. They're, they're at the bottom of the totem pole economically in the countries they're in. So, so artisanal mining happens in a, in a little bit over 80 countries. And 45 million people doing mining means families and all in. There's about 200 million people directly supported by mining. And then there's people who sell to them. So food, shelter, clothing, equipment, all of that. And the World Bank estimates there's another 134 to 269 million people that sell goods and services to artisanal mining. So the sector's massive. The sector is global with uh, vast areas of Africa, Latin America, and, uh, and Asia, including mining. It's a whole bunch of different minerals, ranging from precious metals through the gems, through the critical minerals for uh, energy transition. And it's an opportunity for development, for uh, the dignity of workers, for, uh, for, for productivity, for really changing the game on regional sustainable development. Today we're joined by Rob Karpati and uh, Rob is a, a, our second time guest and actually uh, the only time a guest has come on in the second time, which is very exciting. And I'm very glad to be joined here by Rob today to be discussing quite an important topic. And that is the topic of artis artisanal mining, uh, which is really relevant for many reasons, but especially in the age of uh, what economists are calling green growth the age of green capitalism. Uh, but I'd like to uh, welcome Rob for joining us. So Rob, uh, thank you for joining us for a second time today. And uh, and for those who may have not listened to the podcast the first time, the first time around, um, you know, who are you and what is your background and, you know, a little bit about yourself? Well, fantastic. Thank you very much, Xavier. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, I, I've been a career finance, a finance lead in uh, uh, multinational environments. In the last several years, I've been focused on uh, sustainability, governance and strategy and sustainability, specifically in mining and artisanal mining. Opportunities for both positive impact and for productivity are just massive because mining at the end of the day happens in remote places, underdeveloped places, places where the process has outsized touch in the community. So for me, it's a real interest and a real opportunity to make a difference. So looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. And I think uh, it's it's uh, we can uh, begin with uh, sort of unpacking what uh, artisanal mining is. And I think we're, we've we're started up upbeat, but as an industry, it is quite uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, difficult and challenging things that have come out of the industry in terms of uh, in terms of the impact on people, the day-to-day -day lives, and uh, and uh, quite the unethical practices that are actually present uh, if in in those sort of industries. And so, uh, you know, the mining sector is known for many things. It's known for you know extraction of minerals, for you know for goods and services, for art and commerce, and for building infrastructure. But, you know, there's currently what you told me the other day when we had our conversation, there's an invisible sector, uh, which impacts the day-to-day -day lives of not only the miners themselves, but also ours. You know, I think all of our phones contain minerals that are at probably in uh, just statistically speaking, have probably been extracted by artisanal miners at one point or another. So 
you know, who are artisanal miners and what is their story? Well, fantastic. So maybe to give you a bit of an overview, Xavier, and mining at a, at a million foot level, there are two different uh, aspects to it. There's large scale mining, the big companies out there, the BHPs, Rio Tintos, Barracolds, and so on. And then there's small scale artisanal miners, the one-offs, the small, the little co-ops. So putting it in context, there's all the large scale miners put together. There's about 7 million people around the world employed in mining companies. But artisanal miners, there are 45 million miners. And to a large degree, these folks are pretty invisible. They're, they're at the bottom of the totem pole economically in the countries they're in. So, so artisanal mining happens in a, in a little bit over 80 countries. And 45 million people doing mining means families and all in. There's about 200 million people directly supported by mining. And then there's people who sell to them. So food, shelter, clothing, equipment, all of that. And the World Bank estimates there's another 134 to 269 million people that sell goods and services to artisanal mining. So the sector's massive. The sector is global with uh, vast areas of Africa, Latin America, and, uh, and Asia, including mining. It's a whole bunch of different minerals, ranging from precious metals through to gems, through to critical minerals for uh, energy transition. And it's an opportunity for development, for uh, the dignity of work for, uh, for, for productivity, for really changing the game on regional sustainable development. Yeah, I mean, I think just that very simple stat that there's 7 million miners and then there's 45 million artisanal miners, I think t- paints this the story pretty plainly already that uh, there's a whole sector of people that are pretty much going unseen and yet they contribute to a very, very large extent to the global economy and also to our, our well-being in our everyday lives. Um, I imagine that if you were to take artisanal miners out of the picture, uh, that we wouldn't be able to support the livelihoods that we live. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the livelihoods that we live conversely impact artisanal miners in a way that is, uh, you could say, degrading. It is unethical because of the practices that they have to undergo at the cost that they have to undergo um, in terms of health, in terms of their dignity, like you were mentioning, and many other things. Um, to, to, get a, to get a picture, in terms of artisanal miners, what are they mining? Um, and, and how does the stuff that they're mining actually contribute to the day-to-day lives of people in the global north or people that are uh, more wealthy and, and, uh, in develop, developing countries? So, so great question. So not all artisanal mining is created equal. It's um, in 80 plus countries, it means local socioeconomic realities define what ASM tends to look like. Some artisanal miners are, you know, they're highly skilled. They, they, they make a decent living. They're, uh, they're their own bosses and live well. The others are horrible at the, at the bottom of the totem pole taking advantage of, and there's everything in between depending on the specifics. There, 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 there are broad-based challenges in the industry that include it's hard to get investment capital. There's no real access to impact investment. That's a problem that we'll talk about. There's 
end-to-end -end data is lacking, so the sector is somewhat invisible. So that's a problem that we'll talk about. And rights of artisanal miners vary by country and even within countries. So that's a challenge that we'll need to talk about. All of that defines the way they uh, live. The kinds of minerals that they're involved in, there's really a few broad-based categories. One is um, precious metals. So gold's the obvious one, because of the 45 or so million artisanal miners, 15 or 20 million of them mine gold. It's, it's by far the biggest subsector of ASM, but there's a whole lot of other uh, precious minerals as well. Precious stones are another one. Sapphires, let's say. There's something like 80% of global sapphire production is artisanally mined, and diamonds, and so on. And then you've got things that are um, critical mineral-related for energy transition. Cobalt and copper have meaningful chunks of artisanal mining. So the DRC, has about 70% of the world's copper or cobalt mining, sorry, and about 20% of that is artisanally mined. So it matters. And, and, and you think about copper, cobalt, and other critical minerals, these are things where production volumes need to grow exponentially to meet the demands of transition in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Then the last category is a broad variety of miscellaneous, ranging from sand through nickel, through tin, through, through, through other materials. So it's a wide swath. From, from a global north point of view, obviously it's part of the materials we end up consuming and the, 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 the goods that we buy. And for the most part, it's a minority of those materials, but it matters. And the productivity opportunities matter a lot, given what's ahead of us. From a global south point of view, 45 million miners means that there's a huge economic role that the sector plays. There, other, other, other than agriculture, in large swaths of uh, Africa, for example, it's the second biggest industry in, uh, in, in a bunch of countries. So, so the opportunities for sustainable development that go with it are uh, huge. Yeah, I mean, just to just to to go back to what you were mentioning, I mean, I, I think that's quite uh, eye opening. That, for example, for like precious stones, that sapphires are majority uh, mined by artisanal miners, and like you said, I think it it's important to paint the nuance that not every artisanal miner is perhaps uh, living in 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 abject uh, poor standards, and at the same time. I imagine that you would say that there's not the same rights assigned to artisanal miners um, to a certain degree, and the, also the consistent standards of living are probably not the same for artisanal miners compared to those that are employed by mining companies within these regions. Um, what would you say are the, the, if we were to try and paint a picture of the everyday life of, the, of a standard artisanal miner, what does it look like? What is their livelihood? What is their their well being? Uh, you know, what what would a normal artisanal miner look like? So, it varies by country and by mineral a lot. But it, but at the end of the day, there's a handful of things that are in common. Large scale miners tend to be heavy on equipment, underground. So whether it's open pit or whether it's underground. And small scale miners, artisanal miners, tend to be manual completely or relatively and tends to be at the ground level. So it's the kind of work where you get your hands dirty. 
That's, that's thing number one. Thing number two is most, of, most artisanal miners aren't formalized. And by formalized, what I mean is that they're, 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 they're part of met value chains where there's contractual agreements and stable flows in and out of them, getting stable um, money that they can live on. So, so, so they're very much ad hoc. They're very much individual. And, and they're at the front end of value chains. So, so, so what that means is um, to a lot of the time, artisanal miners, the product that they mine are not responsibly mined. So, so they sell to someone who in turn sells to someone who sells to someone else. And all these people take cuts. So what it means is that um, the artisanal miners don't get a lot of the time a reasonable fraction of what the of what the mineral is worth, which which is a problem, and scale is another problem because if you're a large scale mining company and you're uh, you're 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 generating truckloads worth of ore, that's one answer compared to if you're a small scale miner and you're generating a few kilograms worth of ore. How do how do you take that to market? How do you how do how do you sell it? How do you move it on? The 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 economies of scale just don't look the same, and that comes with not being organized. Yeah. So the fact that capital is lacking and it's generally lacking in uh, most of it wherever it happens, is part of the problem. Because how do you automate and how do you build scale, and how do you go from individual one-off miners to co-ops that combine them and build scale without that upfront money that enables that yeah and i think if we were to just summarize that so obviously they they do manual mining they operate on the ground level they're not formalized so they don't have any contracts or any sort of that those protections that are mainly afforded to those that are formalized and then you mentioned that they are placed did you say at the front of the value chain did you say correct yep great and so essentially they're whenever they are collecting let's say um cobalt they'll sell it to someone who then sells it to another person and so in terms of the the gains that they get it is not the same gains that you would say you would get in a more formal environment if you're working for a company for example where you you know you get a certain a certain wage a certain salary that's consistent and then obviously they don't have the necessary capital to operate on a necessarily profitable scale because you know they're working with limited means and um, if we were to try and paint so i mean uh, if we were to try and think of the day-to-day -day lives of artisanal miners, so obviously you said there's a big spectrum. It depends on which country they're based in. Um, actually, before I even actually get to that point, I was wondering what what are the the main countries and where artisanal miners are from? So I know, for example, DR Congo is a really big one. I think Chile is a very big one for lithium. I think lithium is the second biggest uh, 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 mineral uh, the most the most deposits of uh, lithium come from Chile, the second most at least. I think is my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rob. But where, where are most of the artisanal miners placed? And my understanding is it's mainly in the global south. But yeah, where are they placed? Almost exclusively in the global south. So Asia, Africa, Latin America. India has about 15 million artisanal miners. China has about 9 million. Countries like Malaysia, Indonesia have a lot. Flipping to Africa, 
the, the, the DRC, Burkina Faso, Mali, Madagascar, Ethiopia, Uganda, all countries with either hundreds of thousands or a million plus uh, artisanal miners, and flipping to Latin America, per, 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 Peru, Chile, some of those countries, Ecuador, have a, have a whole lot of artisanal miners. And of course, what they mine varies depending on what's the mineral in the specific location. But you think about the dynamics in all of these countries, you've got folks who look for the dignity of work. They want a decent opportunity to make a fair dollar and the, the, the economies aren't great economies, which is what attracts them to this in the first place. Mm, absolutely. So with that in mind, so it, it, I think there's a lot of parallels to other industries such as fast fashion, but I'll get into that tangent uh, very shortly. Um, I wanted to try and paint. So we know what the, we, so we have an understanding of where artisanal miners are from. We understand that they play a huge role in the mining sector and are in, in largely an invisible sector because they're not informalized. They don't have consistent wage. They live off uh, of manual practices that are not very efficient. So even if they, even if they uh, had the the necessary labor to to extract these minerals, it's not done in a in a in a manner which uh, can afford them a good livelihood. And I was wondering. If we were trying to, I think we can zoom into a particular country now and one I'm a bit more familiar with, which is the DR Congo, um, and try and examine what the everyday life of an artisanal miner would look like. My understanding is that uh, if we are looking at the context, DR Congo is a country that is quite poor on a on a on a median if we're looking at median income as my understanding according to the world bank in 2018 three quarters of the country's population lived on less than two dollars a day which is you know virtually nothing and at the same time the value of cobalt or other minerals like cobalt that are going to be necessary for the green transition are increasing in price every year because of the increasing demand or the increasing need to, um, you know, create electric vehicles and electric batteries for Teslas and things of these sorts. The value of those minerals are so rich that that it's uh, to to you know not mine cobalt would be seen as a, a missed opportunity for these people that don't have the means to to sort of uh, uh, garner an income in any other meaningful way or as quickly or as possible in other ways. Um, so could you help me paint a picture for the audience of what is the day-to-day -day life of an artisanal miner in, let's say, the DR Congo? So, 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 the, so the, the DRC is, it, it's, it's a good example. It's a very poor country, but it's a resource-rich country, like you said. Cobalt, copper, but also gold and other things. And, and so there's a whole lot of artisanal mining there. The, the, so first things first, before even the Congo, part of the profile of uh, artisanal mining is globally, the 45 million people, about 30% of them are females. And in Africa, it's about 50% females. And so that, so, so, so one thing that ends up meaning is it's, it's, it, females end up being getting the less lucrative part of uh, ASM work. Uh, 
and there there there's sexual violence there's they're 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 underpaid they they have to worry for their safety in a very real way so they end up being highly marginalized even though it's a big whack of people and 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 that's true in swaths of africa Another part that's true in, in, in parts of Africa is there's child labor. And so there's an estimated two, I think it's about 2 million people they estimate who are children who are artisanal minors. And so there are two subsets to that and it's important to bifurcate the two subsets. So one of them is really sad. It's the real small children living horrible lives and horrible circumstances and things that you and I just can't imagine, Xavier. Then that, then there's another subset. So think the 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and these people are from poor families and they have to work to help to help bring food to their family. So it's not the same as the seven-year-old doing their artisanal mining, but, 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 but there needs to be a broader developmental solution to, uh, to, to manage the fact that they've got to do something to continue to survive. So, 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 so women and uh, children and human slavery is the third part of the mix is something else that in places, including in Africa, happens. So, so you think about the DRC, conditions, you know, I mean, it's manual hard work for very, very little money, prone to corruption, and parts of the DRC, it's legal to uh, artisanally mine. Other parts of the DRC, it's not legal to artisanally mine, but it happens anyway. So the treatment is different depending where you're at in the country. A lot of the time artisanal mining happens in the land concession of a large of a large scale mining company. And again, depending on what that mining company is and the degree of engagement, there's the potential for anything ranging from open, con open conflict to, and, and violence that comes with that to, um, to something much more collaborative. I, it was in Burkina Faso a little, like a week or two ago that I was reading something that, um, a, a, a community and artisanal miners attacked a large-scale mine because the the dynamics weren't in play for positive engagement and they were feeling abused and so they took matters into their own hands. So 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 it's it's folks living on the edge really, working really hard in a lot of cases, trying to make a decent buck or whatever the definition of a decent buck is. Absolutely. And I think to even touch on those factors that you were mentioning, Rob. So, you know, just to summarize, child slavery and 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 child labor, I should say, where you have, you know, kids as young as three, according to one article in the New Yorker, that are working uh to to mine. And there's an article in that article by the New Yorker, it's uh if you type in cobalt, uh cobalt mining New Yorker, you'll be the first article. Um, but, you know, children as young as three uh, uh, are, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, brought along by their mother or their father to, to help mine. And the reason is obviously the more people that you have to, to look for rich materials, the more likely you are to, you know, make more money. And at the same time, a, a sort of a crude and, and 
abysmal reality is that um, because the the children are uh, are helping the parents mine, they become very adept and very effective at mining as well in terms of they're able to look for certain types of stones or certain types of materials, which are then you know help them uh, help them uh, earn earn a living wage and. Um, so that's the first item, child child labor. And just to touch on that, like I said, it's children as young as three um, till to teenagers. And then you mentioned uh, you mentioned gender discrimination and sexual violence, especially in in, in uh, the DR Congo and in countries in the area where they have a much higher uh, a much higher uh, a split of women working in artisanal mining. Then you also talked about slavery. Uh, just to add another layer. Um, I would also see, think another factor is our health concerns. Um, and the fifth layer there would be safety concerns as well. And perhaps you can help me touch on this. But in that New Yorker piece, they said that a recent study in The Lancet found that women in the Southern Congo had metal concentrations that are among the highest ever reported for pregnant women. The study also found a strong link between fathers who worked with mining chemicals and fetal abnormalities at fetal abnormalities in their children, noting that paternal occupational mining exposure was the factor most strongly associated with birth defects. So, you know, aside from those three things that you were mentioning, Rob, I think that health concerns are, uh, are, uh, are clearly evident, especially within the DR Congo. And I wonder if that'd be similar uh, across regions. Um, but on also not only physical health, but also mental health. So I think there was a recent study that I saw that showed that cognitive behavior therapy is just as effective in, in rural communities as it is in, you know, uh, in, in communities that are more affluent. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because the mental, uh, the mental health concerns among artisanal miners, I'm sure are heavily fraught, especially because of, the fifth reason, which I'm going to outline, which is uh, security reasons. And I don't mean security in terms of uh, uh, what I mean by security is in terms of the security of the infrastructure and they're mining in. So I think there are mining practices, which you could probably know a lot more than I do, Rob, where essentially you dig holes in the ground um, to help mine cobalt, for example, in the Congo. And these holes are not reinforced in any way. And so miners that are digging 20 feet under the ground looking for cobalt often those mines collapse, killing, you know, dozens of people at a time. Um, and, uh, you know, th there's a quote that is pretty ominous in, in the article and it mentions that, you know, it was talking, interviewing one of the artisanal miners and they mentioned that cobalt, it makes you dream. Um, and I think that is an incredibly ominous thing, but I just wanted to add those two points, which is, you know, um, security and then health. Well, every, everything you said is right on. And so, so, so going back to child labor for a second, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a thing around context that matters because it's, it's, it's one thing to talk about the awful situations, the three, five or seven year old. It's another thing to talk about Sri Lanka sapphires, let's say, where knowledge around uh, artisanal mining gets passed down from families and they start teaching their children what the skills are when they're still children. So it's not an abusive situation, but it's still a form of child labor. But in all cases, you know, it's, 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 it's real and it's a problem. And, and so are the other things. As far as toxicity goes, 
So mercury, when it comes to gold mining, is, is something worth talking about because mercury gets into the ground and it gets into the people and it's toxic, obviously. And there, there's been work that, you know, people who are chemically, who are smarter at chemistry than I am talk about trying to replace mercury with alternatives like borax or something else. And hopefully that'll happen one of these days. But for today's purpose, the preponderance is done through mercury without the, without the uh, protective equipment that you'd need to be able to uh, deal with it properly. Then one, and, and, and the same principle, like you said, with cobalt and other minerals have their own specifics. Then when it comes to safety, there's a few cuts at that. So number one, this is ground level work that's manual, but ground level doesn't mean you're picking it up off the grass. You're digging a hole. It might be five feet deep. It might be 15 or 20 feet deep, like you said, and you're not using industrial techniques for that hole. So there are, there are situations, the hole collapses, people die. And there really aren't great stats on how often that happens because um, the perception is there's a whole lot of it and, and, and that's, that's awful, but, but, but stats don't bear it out probably because it's an informal industry where the stats just don't exist. These are folks who are largely invisible, so you don't know sometimes. Then safety comes in other forms too. So you've got some of these miners who are, you know, they're co-op, they're, they're organized, they're almost independent business people, and that's one thing. But then you've got others who are one-off and prone to abuse, prone to, uh, prone to the corrupt bad actors. And those are people who might have guns. And so there's a whole different form of safety in play when it comes to that, especially when you start commingling it with places where there's um, political violence or conflict. So let's say, um, Islamic fundamentalists in some countries, let's say, um, it, like Burkina Faso, for example, let's say, um, or Ethiopia, let, 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 let's say organized crime in Colombia, let's say, where may, maybe there's a better buck to be made through artisanal mining than through selling cocaine. So, so sometimes there's that form of violence as well, which is maybe more direct as a safety issue. Absolutely. And um, maybe just a final point that I recall reading in, uh, in, in some of the research that I've been doing is that um, quite, a, uh, quite a hard, uh, I guess, uh, I get trade-off that parents have to make in countries like DR Congo is that because because it is so poor for so citing that World Bank figure of you know most three quarters of the population living off two dollars a day, um, when when parent when when a when a when a family ha when they have kids, uh, there's often this trade off between do I send my child to school, or do I keep them with me so they can help me mine, and it seems as though it's quite a. Uh, you know, it's a lose-lose in a sense. Um, perhaps you could argue that sending the child to education is better. But what I mean by that is if you keep your child with you, you'll be able to potentially make more income, maybe will support the life of your family better, and then eventually send them to education later on. But if you send your child to school, um, it means the mom or the dad is without, is, is, has less labor around, um, 
and means that they could, you know, potentially be at worse off conditions and live on worse conditions because they're trying to, you know, trying to support their child as best as possible. So it seems like an incredibly jarring, difficult and, and deeply cruel relationship as well, because, you know, you don't want kids to, to be working. And yet if they continue working with you and they don't get the education they need, there's going to be all sorts of exploitation, such as that lack of formalization. They won't, uh, you know, won't be able to, to maybe develop co-ops and join forces to, to bargain for better rights or better pay and those sorts of things. But I just wanted to add that as a comment. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I mean, different places are different and trade-offs in some places are very sad by definition, which is part of why there's a huge opportunity here with formalization. And, and, and I guess the question becomes, what does formalization mean? And how do you get there? Because one thing, formalization, the act of, uh, of formalizing relationships, whether it's co-ops, value chain, so on, it's not going to be imposed. It shouldn't be imposed. It, some, so, someone from London, New York, Toronto, or Sydney doesn't know better than, than, than the people on the ground. So formalization needs to be a hybrid effort in, with, with heavy voice of people on the ground, meaning the miners, meaning communities. And formalization isn't mining in a bubble. It's regional development in the mining context. So you, you, you think about the region of the mine and you think about a lot of miners, more people in their family, more people selling them, selling to them, and sometimes commingling with agriculture or something else. You, you, you're not going to cherry pick mining and in a bubble fix some problems. You're going to trigger development in the entire region based on formalization of the mining, which is intended to uh, to change what some of those trade-offs look like. So, so, so what do you need to get there? Well, you need money. You need expertise. So investment. You need expertise in um, how do you do that kind of work? So call it engagement for a minute. And locally act engagement. You, 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 you need buy-in from various value chain actors and you need clarity of rights because all of those things come together. And, 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 and in a way, when you talk about money, it goes hand in hand with you need data because artisanal mining to a pretty big degree, it, it's invisible. It's easy to bendy about numbers that there's 45 million miners and it's 20% of the world's gold that's artisanally mined and whatever else. But, but what does that mean? What does that mean as far as the value chain? What does that mean as far as their lives? Well, there, there isn't a whole lot of data around it. So the opportunity to, uh, to, to enable positive investment means driving data to find out where it makes sense, driving standards and best practices so you know how to do it, building expertise so you've got people who can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what I find a bit challenging with, although I, I completely agree with you with all those points um, in terms of the need to formalize the workplace and so you can help workers get better rights, better pay, um, and then also getting investment elsewhere to help bolster the, the security 
uh, of those jobs and to help people um, and raise them out of uh, raise the the living standard so that they can live in dignity and live on a wage that allows them to live in some sense a healthy life not only for themselves but for their kids one thing i find challenging and i think this uh, we can i can draw on the example of fast fashion even though it is different because obviously fast fashion um is mainly for production side and regulate regulation side it may be similar but in terms of minerals it's it's just a coincidence that these minerals are placed in the global south whereas with fast fashion it's a bit more intentional in terms of where to focus production but um using fast fashion as an example um for example in bangladesh whereby the the regulations that are in those countries are such that it means that uh, factories can collapse or factories go um or factories go uh uh go without the necessary checks in order to ensure that workers are, are safe that are being paid paid enough uh, to prevent sexual discrimination as well as just gender discrimination. All of these sort of similar factors which you're mentioning in terms of uh, there's a need to have buy-in from external stakeholders, there's a need to formalize the work, there's a need to increase the rights of those or better rights, to have better rights for those workers are sort of there. And yet it seems as though um, the livelihoods of those workers are perhaps nominally better than maybe artisanal workers in let's say DR Congo. And yet I, it doesn't seem as though, uh, it doesn't seem as though that, that is, uh, I wouldn't say the best solution, but it, it doesn't necessarily seem as though it is, uh, bringing those people out of a livelihood that isn't, that, that is, that is filled with dignity, if that makes sense. Yeah, like like there, the, the the two things do have a fair bit in common, and at the end at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it it's hard to say whether the garment worker in Bangladesh or or, or their artisanal miner in uh, the DRC has a tougher road. I don't pretend to know, but 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 they both face real tough challenges. Is the bottom line. So so doing something about that, you know, what do you need? You need visibility. So, so, so visibility means data, data on how do, how do these people live? What do they earn? What do they do? What are their circumstances, challenges? And that's visibility for both investor, investors, because where's the impact investment opportunity, but also for consumers at the end of the day. You got someone, you, you bought that t-shirt or I bought this thing and it was made somewhere. I have no clue where it was made. I, I, I bought it in the store down the street and was it made in a, in a responsible way? Well, I hope so, but I don't have a clue. So, so, so that kind of ultimate visibility needs to suffuse and it doesn't exist today. So there's a data dimension to this. Then, then, then when you think about investing to change the game, what does an investment marketplace look like? Well, again, you need the data obviously, but you need standards and best practices. So what is responsible garment look like? Uh, or what does responsible artisanal mining look like? What are the standards around it? What are the best practices around it? And how do you validate that um, that's actually happening? All that needs to be spelled out. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not spelled out in order to uh, 
kick people out of the business because that's the wrong outcome. It's it, it's to be able to collaborate with people to um, generate positive impact. Because again, if it's economically important, uh, artisanal mining, let's say in the Congo, and it's not responsible standards, well, you can stop, but okay, what have you done now? People, instead of making a horrible living, are making no living and they're starving. Wrong answer. Or, 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 or through the right investment and the right engagement expertise and the right standards definition, you can collaborate towards uh, shifting the bar. Ditto with the garment factory in Bangladesh. And you think about it from a stakeholder point of view, well, who cares? So there's a bunch of different stakeholders. One is the, the large-scale mining company. The other is the end customer. Let, let's say Tesla, for example. The other is the end consumer, you and I. And, 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 and there, there's different value chain actors. The, there's governments with public policy goals. So the list goes on. So, so what does Tesla care about? Well, they probably need predictable supply and price, I, I would guess. And predictable supply means conflict-free operations, which means responsible mining. And they're going to need more, not less. So they need growth. So they need the productivity that comes with it. So, so, so tech, you can theoretically engage based on the interest of end customers if you corral them based on standards and best practices. Then you think about large-scale mining companies. Well, where does ASM happen? A lot of the time it's on or beside the land concession of the large-scale mine. So, you know, you can either collaborate or you've got conflict risk and liability risk and environmental risk and everything that means. And if something goes wrong, they're going to go after you because you got the deep pockets. So, so, so again, there's there's a subset of responsible mining in the large-scale mining uh, context that overlaps. You've got governments that are theoretically interested in uh, sustainable development. So again, you've got public policy goals. You've got impact investors who want to do, do good and do well at the same time. So drive positive impact and productivity at the same time. So you've got a confluence of interest across a whole lot of different stakeholder groups that can be brought to bear on this with visibility and clear standards to an investment marketplace being an equalizer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was, there was a lot there, Rob, and I think um, I think you outlined a outlined a, a key a, a number of key solutions that are necessary in order to make the dignity of work and the livelihoods of artisanal miners better, but also how to uh, invest in communities and in these countries where they where the, you know the medium wage is pretty nominal how to increase their standards and then increase the policy object uh, increase the uh, uh, in, improve the policies that are within these countries to then uh, create more positive externalities and help investment from you know in uh, companies like tesla uh, companies like apple or google that you know have an interest in you know purchasing a consistent supply of you know lithium or cobalt or whatever whatever it may be um, so it, it seems, uh, it, it, you know, when you paint it the, the way that you paint it, the, the picture that is, it, it seems um, not necessarily straightforward, but it seems clear uh, in terms of how to approach this. And yet 
as I can imagine that the managing multiple stakeholders interests is probably very challenging as I understand it. And I know that's work where you've done in, is managing stakeholders interests, especially within the context of mining. And uh, that is really challenging. Um, how do you, how, how can we go about managing the interests of, let's say, uh, for, for profit public companies like Tesla, who, you know, need to increase their share price year on year to, for their shareholders and purchase, you know, let's say cobalt from the DR Congo at a consistent and good rate. And at the same time, prevent the exploitation of artisanal miners, because as I see it, it's a positive, positive relationship where as growth in, let's say cobalt increases, the negative impact on artisanal miners also increases. Um, although there may be more, I guess, uh, money uh, uh, that is generated at the same time, there may be more number of deaths, maybe you know, increased exploitation, more slavery, more child slavery, and uh, more child labor. Um, and so, are these things going just going to be go in tandem with each other until a country has the economic prosperity to sort of prevent these things from happening? Or what, what do you think? I think we're talking about a generation-long change. And because at a really high level, it's one thing to say this about stakeholder alignment and everything that I said a minute ago and driving locally after formalization based on the voice of the miners, the, the, the funding from the impact investments and the collaboration of all these stakeholders. Yes, that's the answer. But it's equally true. There's 45 million artisanal miners worldwide. And it's going to take a whole lot of time to, uh, to, to flip the coin on, on the realities for, uh, for, for a lot of these people, especially when you think about the intractable conditions in some places where there's active conflict or, or, or corrupt governance or uh, other things that get in the way of the work. So I think all of that's one thing. It's generational, but you got to start somewhere. The notion of an investment marketplace and clear data clear standards, clear best practices, is that it makes sense for all stakeholders. If you're Tesla, because you, you said their word, or Apple or any of these other companies, what do you need? You need predictable volume and price. You don't want your uh, car plant shut down. You don't, you don't want to run out of the, the, the lithium or cobalt or copper to make your car or your battery or, or, or any other part of it. You need it. So you got to lock in that supply and you got to lock in that supply in the context where demand for copper is going to be multiples of what it is today, 10 or 15 years from now. Demand for cobalt is going to be multiples of what it is today, 10 or 15 years from now. For lithium, nickel, manganese, so on, all the critical minerals. So because of that, the notion of formalization, taking out the non-value-adding uh, middle layers, the middlemen, um, dri 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 driving sustainable development in a regional context and amping up um, productivity along with dignity through, um, through targeted investment, you're actually helping generate the supply that Tesla or anyone else is going to look for come 2030 or 2035 or 2040. And these guys know that. 
kiss there, they, 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 they know that uh, copper production today is this much and, and in 10 years is gonna need to be this much. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Um, and I think if I was to be critical of, of uh, uh, the companies uh, that are responsible for sourcing these large amount of minerals at a at a at a growing level each year, um, or maybe I should say consumers, because at the end of the day, I guess it's production and consum and consumer driven as opposed to just production driven. But um, um, one one there's a sort of growing school of economics called degrowth, and we've sort of been we've been uh, investigating this on our on our podcast and interviewing a few specialists in this area. And I think the uh, the degrowth or maybe a um, uh, a post growth lens in which to view artisanal miner rights and uh, from is that do we necessarily need to have this exponential growth in for companies that is so consistently increasing their share price year on year um, in order to better the rights of artisanal miners? Um, I think that's the critique that they would have is that is it do we necessarily just have to keep growing in order to to fulfill the, these rights or is there a way that we can better the rights of artisanal miners globally without having to without without uh it ne being necessary that uh shareholders make more money so in so i guess the lens is instead of taking a more neoliberal profit lens of promoting the livelihoods of people it is taking a moral lens and saying you know, we should, we should, you know, uh, discuss the rights and improve the rights of people, not because it's eventually going to make someone a lot of money, but because it's, you know, necessarily the right thing to do. What do, What are your thoughts on that sort of critique of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, artisanal mining, uh, uh, you know, being driven by impact investment and those sorts of things? I think there's a few things there, and and, and I, I I agree with your point that that at, at, at the end of the day, the limits of growth. Smarter people than me know what that looks like, and uh, so, so I'm not going to comment about degrowth or any of that. What I will comment about is number one, large companies, whether it's a large mining company or or an OEM or or, or a tech company. There, there, there tends to be a short-term share focus in, in, in the work that they do. And short-term tends to undercut the long-term by definition. You're eroding your own foundation. So there needs to be a shift. This quarter can't be more than last quarter than the quarter before ad infinitum. It doesn't work that way because sooner or later you do hit the limits of what's realistic. You, you, you need a long-term practical prison. So I think that's, uh, that's one thing. I think a second thing when it comes to artisanal miners themselves, these folks aren't part of corporations. They're the one-off bottom of the economic food chain in a very real way. And there needs to be a combination of public policy and, um, and, and economic action that's dignity-focused. Uh, 
and dignity focused meaning meaning rights meaning decent pay meaning decent safety decent everything and 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 part of that seems to go hand in hand with productivity because that because the one thing you do have is energy transition which has got to happen fast and whether or not there's an eventual limit to planetary capacity and a degrowth imperative i don't know what i do know is in the next 25 years we'd better flip from oil and gas over to batteries and windmills and solar cells and all those other things. And to, and, 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 and to do that fast, you, you got to engage a, a, a tremendous sector that has 45 million people. And actually, putting that, the size of that sector into context, so you're in Australia, I'm in Canada, and the population of Australia 45 million people is two Australias. The, the, the population of Canada, it's one and one and a quarter Canada's. It's two thirds of the UK. It's, it, so, so if you start thinking about it in those terms and the fact that um, that many people are uh, living and working in uh, very difficult circumstances and, in, and in, in, in ways where productivity is very limited, that just doesn't make sense to anyone anywhere. It's both it's both wrong and illogical. Yeah, for sure. No, I I I I think uh, it is a very tough uh, tough uh, position to be in. And I think if we uh, if we transitioned earlier in terms of the green energy transition, it would have been much easier. But we have to, I guess, use the cards that we're dealt to. To help combat the energy the coming age of the green energy transition and then also help um promoting the stories of those who are forgotten or those who are invisible as you said where there's not much data the storytelling is it's you know it's beginning and will continue hopefully through podcasts like these um well, that's why, that's why I, I, and I said it at the beginning, I really appreciate talking to you, because at the end of the day, it's part of a process of bringing visibility to the invisible. That matters, because it's about people and the way they're living and what they do. That matters. And, and, and it goes hand in hand with everything else we've talked about and investment marketplaces and so on. But visibility is kind of table stakes for uh, progress. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very, very happy to have, you know, had this opportunity to chat with you about this, Rob, because I think it's incredibly important. And I'm hoping that this will help promote an awareness that uh, will become growing in the coming years and help create some sort of meaningful change. And on that note of meaningful change, uh, there's a, this may be slightly strange, um, strange strange departure but there's this comedian called Bo Burnham I don't know if you're familiar with him um but he does this uh, he has this comedy a bit as a comedian say um where uh it's it's very esoteric so I won't get into the into the into the details but essentially he's sort of speaking to himself and uh you know he's saying you know what can I help to change the world what can I do and this sort of oppositional figure, it's actually a sock puppet, believe it or not. He says, why do you rich white people always have to you know, view these problems through the lens of your own self-actualization? 
um, which I think is a very it's it's meant to be a a comedic a jab at you know the, the need to always make a difference. You know, I want to help people and want to make change. And at the same time, I think there's actually a really meaningful change that we can make here because it is such a incredibly difficult uh, discussion and a difficult topic. And so I'm wondering. You know, if we were making this a decentralized solution, how can we help people make a difference here? Um, what can people do? Is it a matter of just, you know, sharing stories, telling stories? Uh, but, you know, how can people help uh, the problem of artisanal mining? And yeah. Yeah. So, so, so number one, you know, rich, rich white people from Northern countries um can't impose solutions the, the this isn't some uh, neo-imperialist exercise and uh civilizing so 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 full stop so to me everything we're talking about are the stories of the real people on the ground and its formalization based on the voice of the real people on the ground, which boils up into two categories, obviously the miners themselves and obviously the communities in the region. And, and they may or may, may or may not be the same people, but those two groups. So, so, so to me, those are two starting points. And then, you know, you, you, you broaden that and you think about, well, you need money to drive change because that's just the way the world works. So, 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 so the notion there are experts out there in this area. There are a few that I know who, who know, I think a hundred times what I do, people like Hugh Brown and, you know, picking those brains, engaging those folks to build the right standards, to build the right practices and be able to target the right opportunities. Again, not in a way that imposes solutions, but in a way that has local application with local voices of global frameworks. Mm. And, and, and we've also got to be honest with ourselves. And, and I'm going to say this from a, from a developed world point of view, because number one, the world isn't one size fits all. It's not rich or poor. It's not responsible or irresponsible. It's nuanced. So we've got to look at the nuance. That's one thing. Mm. Artisanal mining sure has nuance where there's everything from all the horrible stuff we talked about through the people who are just fine, thank you, and everything in between. So, 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 so targeting based on nuance is um, one thing. The definition of responsible sourcing is another thing. Because we have OECD responsible sourcing guidelines exist. Yeah, look at the garment industry. <laughs> Look at, look at what we just talked about with artisanal mining. Look at a lot of different businesses too. So, 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 so being honest with ourselves, the difference between what we're saying and what we're doing matters and attacking it with nuance and calling out the people who say one thing and do another thing. Because, you know, I mean, greenwashing is the word of the day and I'm not sure I like the word. I like ESG washing better, but, um, but whatever it's called, the point is, people who lie need to be called out. Mm. Absolutely. I think that's a, perhaps a good place to end the podcast then, Rob. I think that wraps up everything very nicely and leaves people uh, uh, leaves people with the, with the message that, you know, this is a really important problem to resolve and to promote and tell stories about. And at the same time, it's not as simple as 
castigating certain groups of people as irresponsible or responsible. It's a very nuanced problem, which requires a nuanced solution, which requires a lot of deep thinking about how you can help promote these sorts of stories in a way that's responsible and tells the stories of artisanal miners and not in an authentic and a, in a, in a re realistic and a sobering way. So I think we can end it there. No, you got you got it exactly. It's nuanced, it's generational, it's about stories, visibility, targeting practice, it, 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 and we can do this. We're gonna do this, but 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 we're gonna have to do it together. So, having said all that, thank you so much. And the, 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 I always love these things. I love talking to you, and they're important because it's about topics that matter. Thank you. <laughs>